Hello, and welcome to The Five By, your quadra-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Justin tests his sleuthing skills in Detective Remy. Our new guest contributor, Geraldine, takes us out to dim sum and steam up. I campaign for equal rights in votes for women, and Jose warns us about aliens and don't talk to strangers. But first, Erin celebrates iconic women in history in her story. Hey, it's Aaron from GameOfThrones.com, and my contribution to the Five Buy on this episode is going to be about the game called Her Story. Her Story is published by Underdog Games. It was designed by Nick Bentley, Danielle Reynolds, and Emerson Matsuchi. In addition to those fine folks, there were many educational advisors and student researchers and contributors. Her Story is also playable from two to five players and takes about 30 to 60 minutes. So in her story, players take on the role of an acclaimed author, and that author is writing a book to tell stories of the many, many remarkable women throughout history. At its core, her story is an engine building game where players are going to be writing chapters, and oftentimes those chapters are going to have iconography and abilities that are going to make it hopefully easier to write more chapters and or earn more points. Component-wise, her story definitely has a very deluxe feel. It comes with a neoprene mat. It's called the Idea Board. And on the Idea Board, there's going to be scoring on its perimeter. Scoring tokens are pushpins without the pin. And it comes with five player boards, which are essentially uh, thematically your desk as an author. 120 chapter cards, meaning there's 120 different depictions of different women throughout history. And on the back of the cards, it's going to have a short bio uh, to give players an idea of who these women were, still are, and what their contributions were. There's also going to be a, I believe, faux leather uh, drawstring bag, which contains 52 research tokens. Those research tokens have icons on them. Those icons reflect four different symbols. There's a book icon for reading, a light bulb icon for thinking, a green speech bubble for interviewing, and a magnifying glass for searching. And there's different combinations. You might have two of the same, three different. I believe each token can have a minimum of two icons on it and a max of three. The aforementioned player boards have a section for two drafted chapters, two cards essentially. And to the right of that, there's going to be space for eight cards cascading, going vertically from the bottom to the top. And that thematically is the chapters being written about different women. Also on the player boards, there's going to be a section on the right side for up to seven different research tokens to be housed. So on any given player's turn, they're able to do one of three things. They're able to do research, which means they can take a research token. On the central board, the idea board, there are going to be six different research tokens randomly drawn from the bag. Players can take one of those and place it on their own player board in order to attempt to complete chapters. Another option for a turn is to draft a chapter. There's going to be five chapter cards on the idea board face up. On each chapter card, there's going to be some combination of those four different research token icons that players are going to have to discard in order to successfully take those chapters from the draft area on their player board to the finished chapter on their player boards, which also goes into the third thing players can do, which is to complete a chapter. Completing a chapter means you've either drafted that card onto your player board and you've matched all those icons with research tokens that you've gathered, and then you can take it from the draft section and then move it over to the right on your individual player board. You can also take a card right from the idea board and place it into your finished chapter area on your player board if you have the research tokens with which to complete it. But you do skip the draft, which is also worth two points. This is also very useful should your draft area already be full. Once that goes into the finished chapter section, many of the chapters have abilities, 
that allow you to score points if maybe you're not in the lead. And many of them come with actual built-in icons, and that's where the engine building comes into play. At a certain point of the game, you may have several chapters written that come with research token symbols on them already. And that can make you much less reliant on the research tokens that are on the idea board, but they're still useful. And many of the cards will have points in the upper left corner, which means once they've gone from your draft area, which you get two points just for drafting. But once you have finished writing that chapter, if that particular card happens to have a number of points that come with it, you would move your pushpin, that number of points, bringing you closer to victory. There's some other details like the library cards that allow you to refresh the research tokens on the idea board. But ultimately, the game will come to an end once somebody has completed their eighth chapter. Everybody gets the same number of turns, or as the most points wins. So I really enjoy when a game does a really good job of blending fun mechanics as well as something educational. Really does do a good job of blending very familiar mechanics. I I don't feel like Her Story is going to offer you something that you've never done before. It's I've often heard it uh, sort of described as like Splendor with Learning. Seems a little reductive, but... In terms of just the pure gameplay aspect of it, it does have a splendor with introducing you to some things you didn't know, which is wonderful. That might be a better way of describing it. Yeah, I think Her Story is a fantastic game that should be played by by anyone. I'd be lying if I said that I was familiar with all 120 women depicted on different chapter cards in this game. I enjoy that, and that benefits me and anyone else that you brought to the table who's open to learning something new. If this sounds like something that's up your alley, I highly recommend you go out there and, and get Her Story. So that's going to do it for me. Uh, Thank you for listening to the five by. Thank you for listening to me. Take care, stay safe and be blessed. Hey folks, Justin Bell here. I'm a big fan of the card game Rummy. Played it a bunch as a kid, mostly Rummy 500. Laying down runs, scoring tons of points, sitting at a table with my family or friends. All I can remember about Rummy is that it was a blast. I had the chance recently to grab a review copy of the new game Detective Rummy from WizKids, and I could not have been more excited. Board game that featured Rummy-like elements with a gumshoe detective theme, a cover that had the noir look I wanted, and a game that had some very slick-looking artwork on the cards and the player boards. Man, I was fired up. But then I read the rulebook. I don't know about many of you, but I read a lot of rule books. Usually, when I start reading the rules for a new game, I get a strong sense of whether the game is going to be for me. However, I don't choose games based on the rule books. It's just a happy accident if I'm excited about a game's theme, publisher, designer, or components, and then I read the rules and everything looks like it will come together. But when I read rules that hint a game might not be interesting, I start to worry. Sadly, My fears about the rules for Detective Rummy translated into a game that also underwhelms. The game just isn't very good. Now that starts with a strange coincidence, one that became clear by the time I finished the rules. There's not much, well, Rummy in Detective Rummy. Let me explain. Players take on the roles of detectives in the Rummy Detective Agency. Your goal is to solve crimes, which should lead to one player scoring more points than the others in your game. But solving crimes involving laying down a series of three or more matching cards is not very exciting. Worse, there's not much mystery to the cases. In each game's six-round setup, players will take actions to investigate locations 
represented by tiles and placards scattered around the table. When playing certain sets of cards, you'll be able to place evidence tokens on suspects who may be guilty of that scenario's crime. At the end of the game, the suspect who is guilty is the one who had the most sets of cards played in that suspect's suit. In this way, the game's outcome is variable, but it's not like you will feel as if you are necessarily solving anything, really. There are chances to get cards from a market. There are public milestones, which are mostly easy to achieve. There are items that can be acquired to grant the owner a minor power, which can then be activated later. These aren't the kinds of game functions that dreams are made of. In fact, most of the gameplay elements feel just a bit underdeveloped in Detective Rummy. It really needed a few more months in the oven before it hit retail. Not all is lost, though. Outside of this whole 5 by podcast environment, I'm the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for a company based in the Chicago area. I'm always on the hunt for games that celebrate diversity, and I'm excited to share that Detective Rummy gets one thing absolutely right. Each player has the choice of about 10 different playable characters, and there are many different choices for character ethnicity right out of the box. Sure, the backstory for each character is pretty light. Basically, you only get a quote for each person on their player board, with each board being double-sided to provide more choices. Still, I can't tell you how many games I have played in the last five years that seem to only offer a choice of a white male character for each player. Oh, oh wait, I can pick a white prince with a red hat instead of a blue one? Woohoo! I just wish that Detective Rummy was as thoughtful as the character choices. If you love Rummy, whip out a deck of cards from your local drugstore. That will be more interesting than a game of Detective Rummy. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. Hi, my name is Geraldine, or to live and dice in LA if that's easier to remember, and I am proud to present Steam Up, a feast of dim sum, as my first contribution to the Five by. I haven't found many games that invoke a sense of pride, familiarity, or nostalgia, let alone a single game that invokes those all. Until now. Steam Up is designed by Pauline Kong, Heyman Lee, and Marie Wong, published by Hot Banana Games, and is a great example of diversity and Asian representation especially in a space where Asian representation is still underrepresented. Steam Up is very much a visually appealing game, complete with a turntable-style board stacked with steamer baskets filled with colorful dim sum to represent five of the more popular dishes you might find at your local dim sum restaurant, like shrimp dumplings, sticky rice, or another dumpling called shomai, my personal favorite, which is a mix of minced pork and shrimps and steamed to absolute perfection. You might be distracted by the squishy food components in the deluxe version, but luckily, the actions are simple and straightforward enough that even if you're caught daydreaming of dim sum, you'll be okay. But 
if you end up dipping the squishy shomai in soy sauce, you might want to make sure you eat beforehand so you don't come to the game table hungry. Steam Up is a foodie's set collection dream come true and plays in about 45 minutes with 2-5 to five players having their own player board with an animal from the Chinese Zodiac and a corresponding special ability that can be used once per turn. Each turn consists of 2 of 5 possible actions, gaining one food token from the general supply, drawing or playing a fortune card which have different effects to resolve, exchanging 2 fortune cards for one food token, or purchasing a steamer basket available in your feast zone with the required tokens. The turntable is designed so you can only purchase steamer baskets in your designated feast zone, an area intended to be perfectly within your own reach. Much like eating dim sum in a restaurant, you move the turntable to bring the food closer to you instead of reaching over. You can rotate the turntable 90 degrees by playing or drawing a fortune card, which can bring a steamer basket from another player feast zone into yours, or to push a steamer basket out of another player's feast zone, making it harder for them to purchase. Once you purchase a steamer basket, you place the delicious dim sum on your own player board in spaces that earn specific hardy points and score accordingly. This is the main way to score, though you can also score points via fortune cards. Once all players take their turns, a fate card is drawn. Sometimes these fate cards have you passing fortune cards to your neighbors, and sometimes they give some kind of benefit to the player with the least points or dim sum. Steam up ends when a certain number of steamer baskets are purchased or when all fate cards have been revealed. You earn points for fortune cards left in your hand and lose points for food tokens you didn't use to buy steamer baskets. Steam Up is likely to be a staple in our collection, mainly because the theme resonates with our family and friends who frequented dim sum restaurants for birthdays and sometimes even funeral receptions, and the gameplay is easy enough to teach during family gatherings where it can get pretty loud and distracting. I've played a handful of times at different player counts, namely 2, 4, and 5, and enjoy the higher player counts more because there's more movement of the turntable and I get to see how players utilize their special abilities differently or even not at all. I played a game where I didn't use my special ability once, not because it was a terrible ability, but because I made more effective use of my fortune cards and actions. In that same game, we encouraged another player whose special ability was to gain food tokens or fortune cards depending on what he rolled. Well, our encouragement was not enough, because he kept rolling blanks nearly every time he tried his special ability. He didn't lose anything by doing so, but he also didn't gain anything either. Sorry, Kuya. With the right moves and use of special abilities or fortune cards, it's surprisingly not that difficult for someone to come from behind and win it all. The player in last place has sneakily purchased a clutch steamer basket and earning them the victory more than you'd think. Lastly, and one of my favorite parts of Steam Up, is the rulebook, which is sprinkled with some really nice touches and nods to the cultural elements surrounding dim sum. I hope you'll consider Steam Up when you want something lighter to play or have a non-gaming friend looking for a recommendation. The standard version of Steam Up can be easily ordered on Hot Banana Games' website, but you can also find it at Barnes & Noble, where I hope the artwork cover will draw non-gamers to it, either because they're already familiar with dim sum or because they're curious what a game about dim sum could possibly be about. I'd like to close out this review by saying that I don't consider myself a content creator to the extent that the other contributors on here are. And yet, here I am, making content for a podcast I've been listening to since 2019. Thanks to the 5 by team for graciously allowing me this really unique opportunity. 
If you're interested in checking out my own board gaming journey, feel free to follow me on Instagram at to live and dice in LA, where most of my posts are likely just the many losses against my husband, my solo plays, and reels of my minigamer. There are very few board games where I can imagine myself in. Did I, as a young Filipina lady growing up in Los Angeles, ever dream about trading in the Mediterranean or breeding sheep in the German countryside? No, of course not. But joining in the women's suffrage movement and being eternally grateful for those people who helped usher in my right to vote? Well, sign me up. That's a game I wholeheartedly support. Votes for Women, a game that came out in 2022, is a game that's equally educational and enjoyable. And if you are the type of gamer that thinks, oh, well, this game is just so political, an actual review I've seen online about this, well, feel free to skip ahead. Just move along, sir. Votes for Women, designed by Tori Brown and art by Bridget and Delicado and Mark Rodriguez II, is published by Fort Circle Games, which designs historical games with a particular focus on United States political and military history. Indeed, the women's suffrage movement that ended with the women's right to vote in the United States happened just a little over a hundred years ago. That's not too long ago in the grand scheme of American history, and something we should work hard to not let the younger generation forget and take for granted. Votes for Women is a card-driven game that plays 1-4 to four players in about 60-75 to 75 minutes. I've only played this game as two players, one as a suffrage movement and the other for the opposition, but you can play this game with either two suffrage players and or two opposition players. Having that kind of flexibility is great because I foresee this game being introduced to gamers and non-gamers alike, and having teams for two suffrage players can make the barrier to entry for playing the CDG less daunting. Additionally, the rulebook is 12 pages. How amazing is that? How many historical games can you name that has a rulebook that's easy to follow? The game is beautifully designed with a map of the United States and many wooden pieces that include an array of campaigners, green check marks, red X's, influence cubes, and an assortment of dice. The game also includes a historical supplement and copies of documents from during that time. Pretty neat for those who want to learn more about this. The goal of the game is twofold. The suffragists want to push to Congress the 19th Amendment and campaign to have 36 states to ratify it. The opposition will try to prevent Congress from proposing the amendment, and if they fail to do that, have 13 states reject the amendment. Each side receives their own deck of cards to play during the game, which, if you played other CDGs, eliminates the fraught decision-making when playing cards that would benefit your opponent. The tension of this game comes from the tug-of-war campaigning across the United States. Cards are phased in with events during the early, middle, and late part of the movements, complete with snippets of history and or historical figures in the flavor text. This shows that a lot of research and care went into the development of this game, and not just slapping a theme on a tried-and-true mechanism commonly seen in war games. Gameplay goes for six turns, in which there are six rounds for each turn. On each round, the suffrage player or the opposition player plays a card, either for the event, to campaign, to organize, or to lobby. Players start with seven cards each turn. Playing a card for an event is just that. Follow what's written on the card, then end your turn. To campaign, players roll a specific dice based on how many campaigners they have on the board, and then they add cubes to those regions that the campaigners are in. To organize, players discard a card and collect a number of support buttons based on how many campaigners they have on the board. And lastly, to lobby, players roll a specific die, and if they get a 6, they can either add or remove a congressional marker on the track on the board. The suffragists need six of these to achieve one of the victory conditions, 
There are also nine state cards in play during a game. If a player places a fourth influence cube in a state that's in play, they gain the state card and can use the benefit on a future turn. There are also strategy cards that also offer benefits that players can bid on at the start of their turn using support buttons. There is a lot of strategy in the order of the cards you play. The suffragist side is also racing to send the 19th Amendment to Congress as it'll lock down states who vote for it once four cubes are placed into that state. The opposition sign, though clearly on the wrong side of history here, feels like it has an uphill battle fighting against the two suffragist movements, which are represented by the purple and yellow cubes. For suffragists, though, either cube works toward their influence goals. The suffragists also start with two campaigners on the board, increasing the amount of resources and the ability to campaign. If the game reaches the end of turn six and the suffragists haven't sent the 19th Amendment to Congress, they immediately lose. If it did get sent to Congress and neither side has placed all their X's or check marks onto the board, players enter final voting where they will go state by state over who's undecided and roll a die to see who wins that state. The player who places their final X or check mark wins the game. If I'm being honest, it's such a great feeling when the suffragists win and it's pretty defeating when the opposition wins. For those not familiar with the US geography, the game provides a reference sheet to help you with the state's locations. There's a beautiful quote from the game designer Tori Brown included in the game's historical supplement book. It reads, I created Votes for Women as a love letter to one of the most successful movements in American history. And that's Votes for Women. This is Meeple Lady for the Five By. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to vote. Bye! As children, we're constantly being given advice by adults about what to do and how to live our life. Make sure you work hard in school, drink your veggies, eat your milk. But Stephen Rhodes takes one of these rules to live by and has made an entire game around it. Don't Talk to Strangers is a game for two to four acquaintances and or friends, designed by Ben Stoll and features artwork by Stephen Rhodes. This is actually the third game in the first volume of the Stephen Rhodes trilogy of games. This game is set in the mythical time of after school, where you're tasked to get your kids from school into a home before the map is overrun with strangers. To play the game, you're going to put your game board within reach of all players. Perhaps the center of the table, maybe? And you're going to collect all of your children. Yes, you have that many. And you draw three cards. Now, once everyone's done that, you're all set. On your turn, you have two options. You can either let a kid out from school and spawn one of your children onto the board, or you can play a movement card from your hand that'll help little Sir Cubsworth navigate around the board. At the end of your turn, you're going to draw back up to your hand limit. While most of the cards that are played are going to be movement cards, there's also other cards, like the Stranger Sighted cards that will spawn we'll call them out-of-towners, onto specified places on the map. Once on the map, these strangers are impassable and make it more challenging for the children to get around the board. Once the last stranger space has been populated, the game ends and everyone tallies up their final score. Much like the other games in this series, Don't Talk to Strangers takes a single mechanism and makes a quick and simple game that's wrapped up in some fantastic artwork and topped off with a quirky sense of humor. Now I want to be clear. 
Simple by no means implies that this is bad. The rules are quick and easy to understand. It's easy to explain it so that you're ready to play within just a couple minutes of cracking open the shrink. Much like demons did for tableau building and treasure did for push your luck, strangers takes take that mechanisms and builds a quick game around that. Although it's a take that game, this game doesn't feel as punishing as other games in the same of the same elk. It's rare when I felt like I had no options, but I was definitely worried the whole time that somebody was going to mess with my kids, and you know bears don't like that. The game is over so quickly, though, that it never really becomes an issue and you never feel too stressed. I also appreciate that the mini board that's included in the game is double-sided, so you do have a couple of options for setup. And there's a number of variants that are suggested in the rulebook just to make the game a little bit more quote-unquote advanced. None of these rules are ever really difficult, but it just adds a little bit more spice to the gameplay. These variations in the board actually kind of help you get your money's worth out of the game. And speaking of money's worth, the game only costs like 20 bucks. You're definitely getting value in this fun game that fits in a tiny box. Honestly, my biggest complaint about the game is the components. It's not that they feel cheap by any means. The, the cards are nice, the board is nice. The tokens are nice, but the kids' tokens are so small that I felt that I might lose my entire family if I sneezed. That's really the only nit I have to pick with the game. But now that you've heard this review and you've heard some of the others in the past, I know you're asking yourself, Jose, which of these three games is the best? Which one should I get? And you know what? Why does everything have to be a competition? Why can't you just enjoy things? Okay, okay. Here's my final verdict. I like all three of them. Wow. Way to sit on the fence. See, here's the thing. These games really just survive around their mechanisms. So if you like any of the mechanisms that were mentioned, whether it's tableau building or push your luck or take that, you're going to like these games. If you don't like those mechanisms, these games aren't going to change that. Personally, I love tableau building. It's one of my favorite mechanisms in any, in any game. So, I enjoy Let's Summon Demons the most out of this trilogy, but I've had a great time with every single game in this volume. I have high hopes that Volume 2 is going to do the same. So, if you like Take That games, this is going to be an easy recommendation for me. My name's Jose, and you can find me on Instagram at SirBearsworth, and on Twitter at SirBearsworth1. Come on by and say hi. Now let's get you into that scoring play... Uh, home, and let's play some games. You've been listening to The 5 by your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Support our Patreon at 5 by Games. Listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit our website at 5 bygamescom Thanks for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.